Hi, I'm Lakeisha Gunter, and you're listening to Roar, an energetic and enlightening weekly podcast that will help you achieve more. This weekly infusion of candid insights, indispensable lessons, inspiring stories, and success strategies for living your best life now will help you on your journey to making your dreams a reality. My experience as a Fortune 50 business and tech executive has led me to meet some pretty amazing people. On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar. Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by ROAR? The beauty of ROAR is that it's both an acronym. The acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And it's an action. We are all born with it, a hidden power inside of us. It's a fire that's often suppressed by fear. Today, I'm excited to talk about recovery and resilience. We all strive toward a life full of meaning, happiness, success, and good health. But we know that life can bring all kinds of surprises and stressors from a relentless job and family demands to COVID-19, the loss of a loved one, or a career setback. Any one of these situations and challenges can literally take us out. When we face obstacles like this, how do we move forward? Surprises are the new normal and resilience is the new skill. How can one use adversity as a superpower and become super resilient, so to speak? How can we recover and bounce back quickly? How can we fall up versus falling down? Fortunately, we know that resilience can be developed. Think of resilience as an emotional muscle that can be strengthened at any time. There are specific action steps you can take to speed up your emotional recovery in times of stress. My guest today knows all about the importance of recovery and a resilient mindset and how the powerful combination of both can enable you to have a greater energy, greater focus, and a successful career in life. I am so excited to introduce Kim Stevenson, Senior Vice President and General Manager of NetApp's Foundational Data Services Business Unit. It is NetApp's largest business unit. Kim most recently served as a Senior Executive with Lenovo as the Senior Vice President and General Manager for the Data Center Group. Kim has over 30 years of diverse experience spanning finance, services, marketing, chief operating officer, and chief information officer leadership roles at Intel, IBM, EDS, and HP Enterprise. And she serves on numerous boards of directors for leading tech innovators. Kim absolutely believes in the power of diversity and that technology has the power to revolutionize everything it touches and that avoiding change is neither possible nor wise. And given the rapid rate of transformation, In the world today, it is critical to develop the wonder twin powers of recovery and resilience. I have the pleasure of calling Kim a mentor, a sponsor, a friend, and a member of my personal board of advisors. She has been so supportive of me and my career over the years. With that, let's welcome Kim to the show. Welcome, Kim. Thanks, Lakeisha. Glad to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. As I shared with the audience earlier, you have just been such a tremendous blessing to my life over the last 15 years, both personally and professionally. And I just can't thank you enough. I'm just excited to really have the conversation today where we have an opportunity to talk about how you've leveraged the power of recovery and resilience in your life and has led you to so much success, both personally and professionally. But before we do that, I'd love to give the audience an opportunity to learn a little bit more about you. I know who you are, but I love for them to understand a bit more about your background, maybe where you're from, and who were some of your biggest influences growing up? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I grew up in Michigan, so, you know, classic Midwest things. I think what was different and influential about my life growing up is that both my parents worked full-time. They were both business owners. My mom ran in Michigan, we called them party stores, but it's a small grocery store. And my dad ran the local bar across, and they were across the parking lot from one another. So, you know, they had long days because of the type of business that it was. And on the weekends, all four of us, I have uh, two brothers and one sister, two of us would go with my dad to work and two of us would go with my mom. 
to work and we would do whatever needed to be done, stocking shelves, cleaning bathrooms, you know, cleaning up broken beer bottles in the parking lot, you know, some work you didn't want to do, (laughs) (laughs) but it did build a good work ethic. You know, I just knew it as normal because that's what I grew up doing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and my parents were very different people, but, you know, they were married for 53 years until my uh, mom passed away. And my dad always said to me that, you know, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room, but you have to surround yourself with people who know different things than you do. And that has been sort of one of the key things that I think about when I'm trying to build a team or when I want to join a team, you know, will I be complimentary to that team. Mm -hmm. And my mom, who was quite different, and my mom was five, two, and bright red hair. So Uh she was, she was a little lady. Size powerhouse. (laughs) But she ran this party store, which was the local store. You know, we made the money off of beer, wine, cigarettes, milk, and bread. Those were the staples, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of local people in those days, they would write checks. And you can't imagine this in today's environment, but so my mom would get the checks back from the bank that she had a kind of deal with the bank. Don't, they're not going to clear, don't deposit them, just give them back to me so that, that she wouldn't be charged that fee and and the person who wrote the check. And then we would go, she would put us in the car on that Saturday and we would drive to those people's houses that wrote bad checks. And my mom would knock on the door and she would say, you know, your, your check is going to bounce. Now I want to be paid for this money. And this is what you owe me. (laughs) And she, she would work out some sort of plan with repeatedly people. It was the same people that wrote the bad checks. Right. Mm -hmm. But she was very kind and, and sort of had this sense of they're not doing this because they want to, they're doing this because they need to eat. And so you know, but she was just fearless. Like, I don't know, I can't imagine knocking on somebody's door and saying, you owe me this money. (laughs) And she always worked it out. And I don't think she was ever truly stuck with bad debt. She collected it all eventually, right? She put some people on payment plans and, and stuff. And so, you know, I sort of learned from her that, you know, kindness goes a long way. People will do the right thing if you're kind to them, but you have to be firm. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's not a freebie, you know, to come in to the store and not pay for the stuff that you took. And and so she really instilled those lessons in all of us. And and I try to live by that today. Right. Absolutely. I love that. I love that sisters and you guys worked in the family business, right? And, and, and there's no a better place, training ground to learn life lessons and learn how to deal and relate to people to your point. So love that. Let's talk a little bit about those experiences, right? Growing up, you know, what are some things that really shaped you to be who you are? You know, as we talk about our war and those defining moments, what might you articulate as maybe one of the defining moments in your life that really kind of helped you find your war? Yeah, I had what most people would think of as a somewhat unusual high school experience. So I went to a place called Flint School Abroad. It was a international school on two tall ships, tall sailing ships that were sort of World War II era repurposed as schools. So when I was, you know, a young teen, I flew to Monaco. I flew to Nice and took a bus to Monaco and I got on a ship. And I did high school on the ship. And so, and I learned really quickly. So if you remember that show in the seventies called the love boat. So I sort of fashioned myself as when my dad said, Hey, we're going to move, we're going to retire and move to Florida. Do, and I was the only one left in school. Do you want to go to school in Florida? Do you want to, you know, go to this private school that I've heard about, you know, I fashioned myself as Julie McCoy, the cruise director. Of course, I wanted to go on a boat and be on a cruise. And well, that isn't really how it was. But that was my fantasy. Right. So day one, you know, flown all night. I'm by myself. I'm a young teen. You know, I got on this bus. I go to the dock. I'm looking for the ship. I had all the instructions. And, you know, there are no cell phones in these days. I get to the ship. And they said, well, we're checking, you know, these other kids are waiting too. We check everybody in. That made sense because they had to check for weapons and drugs and stuff like that. Right. And, Mm. and so they offered us sandwiches and apples and the sandwiches were, I'm really picky eater. Sandwiches were 
sardine sandwiches and then an apple. So I said, well, I'll just take an apple. So I took an apple and I ate it. And then I had the core left. And so I went and I asked the person checking people in. I said, where should I throw this core away? And she said, oh no, we, we eat everything that you take, you eat. That is a rule of the school. I'm like, it's the core of an apple. Right. And she goes, that's what you should. I said, well, you're going to tell me where to put this or what should I do? She says, you really need to eat it. So I rolled back and I threw that thing right in the water, right in the harbor. Right. I chucked it as far as I could. <laughs> and and that night at dinner, I got made an example of in front of, you know, now I don't know a soul. Right. right. I was called out by the captain and the owner of the school as a disobedient student that, you know, we're going to have to teach you, you know, how to follow rules. Oh, my God. It was horribly embarrassing. Not the love boat at all. (laughs) (laughs) That was my wake up call. It wasn't the love boat. The, The premise of the school was that you advance in your schooling through both leadership skills and technical skills. In the case, our technical skills were sailing skills, you know, was repair engine motors, how to dock a boat, you know, how to navigate those kinds of skills and then leadership. And we had this thing every 10 days that if you passed off your skills, you were, you could move up in the ranks and the ranks were landlubber, you know, seaman, first class mate, double mate, captain. And so, you know, just like you would think of, you know, on a naval vessel. And with with rank became, you got privileges, you got more free time. And when we went ashore, you could go, you know, you could do, you had more freedoms. And so there was a real incentive to move up in the ranks. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was then a staff member would bring, you know, say, hey, I have Kim Stevenson. She's passed off all the skills for this next level and stuff. What does the school think? Does she demonstrate the leadership characteristics of this level? And then they would read off the leadership care, what the leadership characteristics were. And every student in the school had a vote, whether you demonstrated that skill or not. And if one, it just took one to say, Mm -hmm. I don't think Kim or whoever um, demonstrates that, and then you would not get your rank. Wow. And so it really taught me to speak up, right? And in business today, now it's natural, you know, because I've been around a while, but you really do have to speak up, right? And let your voice be heard mm-hmm. and not let people run over you. And, and you learn every voice matters. So whether you're leading a meeting, you know, have you heard from everybody? you know, in that meeting, you know, have you voiced your opinion? Because I I see so many people today that, you know, just they have a great idea or they're, they disagree for a legitimate reason, but they just don't think they'll be listened to. And so they don't speak up. And, Mm -hmm. and I had that young experience where, you know, it just ingrained in me that every voice matters and my voice matters equally to everyone else in this room. I love that. I love that. So powerful. Well, I know that that'd be a life-changing experience. Uh, 17, 18 years of age, or probably 16, 17, going into your senior year. And so to your point, those lessons learned there have been cemented and really how you operate as a leader. So love that. So let's talk about that, right? I mean, that was a foundational experience in your life and you have had a phenomenal career and you continue to enjoy a thriving, successful career. You've had some 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 pivots, some great opportunities to work for some of the top, you know, Fortune 50 companies in the world. Tell us about some of the, those opportunities or some of those pivots that you made, and any key lessons and learnings that you've gained over that time. You know, I have a. I often talk about. I have a few defining moments in mm-hmm. my career, and I can't really say that I planned it to happen this way either, right? I think sometimes you just, when the door opens, it's up to you to decide, are you going to walk through it or not? Early, early in my career, I had the opportunity, I I was with IBM and I was in the semiconductor division of IBM and I had the opportunity to work on, I know it's going to sound silly now, but the, what would be the first chip that would combine printing, scanning, and faxing together into a multifunction chip. Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember going home saying my dad owned Pitney Bowes stock. And I would say, Dad, you know, you didn't sell that stock. I mean, we're going to build this great thing and we're going to, you know, it's going to change the world and how things are done. And we actually, that product wasn't successful, but it did, you know, that uh, multifunction chip did get 
invented, it did become commercially viable to produce Mm -hmm. and it did change the world. And, and that's kind of how I think about, I said, this is, I'm going to stay in technology forever, right? Because, because technology changes the world and that Mm -hmm. gets me excited. It, you know, it helps me think about, you know, broader than my job. What am I really doing? Right. And so that, that I considered a, a defining moment in my career. And then I went, I changed companies. I left IBM and I went to EDS. And, you know, just like anybody would do, if you're investigating a new company, I had done all of my research. I'd called people I knew for the company, read all their financial analyst reports. And, and I just felt like this company was undervalued. And with some changes, you know, I could, I could make a real difference and, and the stock would go up. I'd get paid well. Oh, this is just going to be great. And the day I got there, the company announced that they were going to miss earnings by 80%. Now it was September 16th was the day I started mm-hmm. and that the quarter ended September 30th. And because they were going to be off so far, you know, SEC says you have to disclose that. I couldn't for the life of me, could not figure out why they didn't know that because they're in an annuity business, their contract business, and they were five, seven, 10 year contracts. So mm-hmm. what was going on? Well, the stock dropped commensurate with the earnings miss. And in the first three weeks, then the company and SEC investigation was launched. The company was cited for fines for writing puts against its own stock, was cited for fines for doing off-balance sheet financing of airplanes. We're in the technology services business, but but in order to win an airplane, uh, an aircraft business, they were taking leases on airplanes off balance sheet. It was a mess. I mean, a mess, mess, mess. And, and I had a chance that to, my boss called me from IBM and he said, Hey, you want to come back? I mean, there was just like series in the news. It was like day after day, another bad story, another bad story, another bad story. Do you want to come back? Your job is still open. Right. Mm -hmm. And I had a choice and I said, well, I mean, do you want to be a part of the problem? Do you want to fix the problem? And, and I kind of believed in the fundamentals Mm -hmm. that, you know, yeah, there were some pretty bad leaders there. Yes, they'd done some bad things, but I kept thinking, well, the board's going to fire this C- CEO and then, you know, we could get on to fixing this business. And so right. I decided to stay. It was it was pivotal in my career. And it was pivotal because people that had been there a while, their 401ks were wiped out. So the, basically their wealth was gone. Wow. Whatever they had accumulated, little or a lot, it was gone. And people were in shock. Mm-hmm. And it gave the people that were willing to lead the opportunity to lead. And so I wasn't in the highest level position of the company, but I kept, uh, you know, I had read Lou Gerstner's book, So You Think Elephants Can't Dance. And the first time I read it, I thought, because I lived it there, I was like, oh, this is not how it plays out. But <laughs> I sort of viewed my time at EDS as I'm going to I'm going to follow Lou's recipe in the book. Okay. And I would tell people we're in chapter one now. So this is what has to happen. We're in chapter two now. And leading when, you know, you're in a really tough situation and literally, I mean, there were lots of cash issues. There were, there were a lot of issues at the company, but it teaches you more about leadership in those times, in those moments and pulling the teams through that to the point that, you know, they ended up okay, but they couldn't see that they would be okay at the time. And Mm -hmm. so, so I I consider that also a pivotal moment. And actually for me, it was a real career accelerator, right? There just weren't a lot of people willing to, um, as one guy told me at the time, why are you always willing to step out into traffic? And I'm like, because it, I mean, we have to fix this stuff. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. so yeah, so I, you know, sometimes, it doesn't happen the way you think it would, yep. <laughs> but it gives you the opportunity to lead and, and you can get a lot done if you're willing to be out there in front. I love that. I love that. And so, you know, as you were telling that story, it just reminded me of the time that I called you and I don't know if you remember this. And so we were at Intel mm-hmm. and I'm just taking a new job in the labs, if you remember, and yep. we had a leadership transition and I know you had some opportunities in your organization, but I was really calling you to say, hey, listen, here's my situation, circumstance, challenge. You know, I just transitioned. I'm not quite sure. And you said, Lakeisha, my guidance to you is to stay. My guidance to you is to help them 
drive this transition, drive this transformation and make yourself indispensable. Be a part of that team that's going to turn this business around. And that's what I did. And that mm-hmm. was, I mean, career changing. I mean, career life changing. I mean, and I just, I will never forget that call we had. I remember yep. exactly where I was standing, the time we were talking. And I, I mean, it just changed my career. And I just, thank you so much for that. I learned so much in that opportunity. Well, you're welcome. And you're easy to have a discussion with and you listen. And Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm just, and it's just exactly what you just said. Everything you articulated is the conversation you and I had. And the rest is history. So thank you for that. Awesome. That's a phenomenal story. Yeah. So much learning, staying in the fire, right? Instead of running away from the fire, so to speak. Love it. Well, let's build on top of that. Um, You know, again, you've navigated a lot of different organizations, a lot of different challenges, a lot of different crises along the way. And I know in our careers, sometimes we do, you know, it's not always roses, right? Right. I mean, we, we get some thorns along the way as well. And so I'd love for you to maybe talk about, you know, any thorns that you may have had in your career, how you navigated maybe a mistake that you made, how you remain calm through the panic. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what did you do to ensure a successful outcome? Yeah, you know, Lakeisha, I'll tell you the, the first really big mistake that I made. So I was, I was young in my career. I was a first-time manager. And I was running the intercompany accounting department. I was at IBM. And so one of the things that we had to do is we sent in our files to the ledger and the ledger would run all night. Mm-hmm. And we, we had to do this on certain days of the week. Even though I was the manager, my job as the manager was to make sure that those, the debits equaled the credits in those files, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's the bottom line is that the, the ledger could only take in valid files. And so I got a call at about 11 o'clock at night and my files didn't balance. And so, you know, I had to go into the office. I went into the office and I worked all night to figure out what was going on. And there was one other person in for a while, but they, they validated all their stuff was correct. And so they went home and I tried everything. I'm like, someone must've done this. Someone must've done that. Right. And in the end, it was a, a typo that I made. So there was nobody to blame. And I found this about eight in the morning. And you know, I'd been there since 11 o'clock at night. So I'm exhausted. And so I ran home quickly, showered and changed, and then came back in what I considered respectable clothing at the time. And then I'd already called IBM corporate headquarters and I'd already sent, made the fix and sent in the files. But now I was left to explain what happened because I caused the site couldn't close the ledger. Therefore the company couldn't close the ledger. So they lost a full day, which we didn't, we had worked so hard on consolidating the number of days between when we closed the books to when we reported earnings. And so I caused them to miss that. That was a big mistake. And so I went into my boss and I, you know, I explained what happened and I was just sure I was going to be fired. I would have fired me. I mean, in, in those days I would have fired me. And I, so I, but I was ready to take it. I explained what happened, what we do about it. And, you know, it just came out. I didn't even think about it, how we would prevent it in the future. Right. Like this, like this shouldn't have happened. And then here's what, here's how we're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. And my boss actually commended me. <laughs> I was like stunned, just stunned. And I think that that's sort of the key to adversity, right? What did you learn from it and how will you take that forward so that it doesn't happen again? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, truly was one of the worst days of my career because I was singly accountable for it. You know, it, it's, it's okay to take ownership for things, you know, when you know that, it was just something you shouldn't have done. It was really tough and stuff. But but I learned a lot in that, that, you know, everybody does make mistakes. It's not about the mistake. It's about how you recover from it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're all human. And so I just, you know, I went from, oh my God, I'm going to be fired to, and I've never been fired before in my life. Oh no, oh no, right? That, that frantic, scared view to- yeah. What just happened here? How could he be commending me? You know, I was just confused and puzzled. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized 
what an important lesson that was mm-hmm. in how, you know, when you make mistakes, how you have to recover, you know, and it's really about applying what you learn so that doesn't happen again, right? Yeah, and I think one of the, when we were talking before you and you shared this with me, really extending grace to ourselves and to others, right? And I think in that moment, you know, when, you know, he commended you for the fix, right? He said, hey, we yeah. recognize the mistake. But in that, to your point, the grace to say that we're all human, we're going to make mistakes. But the fact that you came and you said, you know what? I own it. This was me. And then here's how we're going to recover and how I'm going to learn from it moving forward and how, what things we can change to make sure this never happens again. That's a phenomenal story. Thank you. So listen, I know you love tennis and you are pretty darn good tennis player. Um, you know, one of the key abilities of, of, of great tennis players is anticipation. I mean, I, yep. I think that the Cincinnati, I think it's the Western Southern Open. Western and Southern, yeah. And so Naomi, bless her heart. I know she didn't prevail, but we'll see her in the Open. But again, I love tennis too. I'm not a very good player, but I do watch it, Kim. <laughs> but most great tennis players have a skill around anticipation. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to know and talk about how important this skill is, not only on the tennis court, but in the professional world as well and how you see it showing up in in your life in in both places. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, so as a tennis player, so I play mostly doubles now Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's key to pick your partner too, right? Your your partner (laughs) should be your, your compliment. And I have a great tennis partner, but you know, we know each other. We know our games. We know our strength. Neither one of us are outstanding on our own. Right. But we complement one another. And so if she's serving and I'm at the net and the serve is down the tee, I know exactly the opponent does not even have to hit the ball. I know where it's coming back. And so I anticipate and I get there, right? And then I'm able to put it away at the net. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you get burned, right? Sometimes they can pull it down the line or or whatnot. But 99% of the time, that ball is coming back to where I think it's coming back. So if, if you wait... In tennis, if you wait until the opponent hits the ball, you're two or three, four steps behind, and you might be able to get it if you're at the baseline, but if you're up at the net, you miss that opportunity to put it away and end the point, Mm -hmm. right? And, And so I sort of think about business in the same way, right? That leaders have to anticipate the moves of their competitors, the moves of market trends and customers. You know, Andy Grove wrote in one of his books about inflection points. Mm -hmm. And then he concluded that, you know, most leaders don't realize they're actually in an inflection point until it's too late. Mm -hmm. And then it, it, and that really stuck with me about when you think about business and you think about, you know, how technology is changing business and the trends there. And so, so now I think about, you know, if we're going to launch a product, then what are the range of reactions our customers, partners, and competitors will have with mm-hmm. that announcement? And then what, what is our response going to be to those reactions? You know, it's a chain reaction thing, right? And, and you have to look for those early patterns in customer buying behavior. If you want to anticipate, you know, what's the next, the next big thing, the next feature your customers need, you've got to look at the buying patterns and the usage patterns in the data And now today, you know, like it's so much easier today with, you know, machine learning and (laughs) systems that call home. And, you know, so there's just a a huge amount of information that can be gleaned from the data that that companies possess. Right. Mm -hmm. And I also I look at the trends in the startup world. Right. So, you know, is a startup a direct competitor to us? You know, probably not. But like, who's funding what in the startup world? Why would they be funding that? What is their investment thesis? How do they think that's going to play out? Will there be a, you know, a winner or a loser? And then you look at performance, you know, of these startups. They Did they land a marquee account? And, you know, if so, why? And, and how do you take those lessons into your own planning? Because it's about anticipation that they're going to grow up one day or that, you know. The group of venture capitalists that just funded billions of dollars into this segment, you know, you got to believe there's something to that, right? right? (laughs) So, yeah, so, so I, I really think that pattern recognition 
is really important. Um, and the same thing, if you think about tennis points, they're all constructed on patterns, right? I have a pattern that I play, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a lot of similarities. A lot. I love that. Preparing for the right response, really understanding what those potential responses can be and, and anticipating the moves to your point. So love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. And again, you know, as, as C, you've been a CIO, COO, you, you've been at the C-suite, you know, and still are today. And you've made the statement in the past, you know, you are the business, you know, and those leadership roles. Talk a yep. little bit about how that perspective has helped you in building those thriving organizations and teams. Yeah, so I think in the end, it comes down to what I'm really, when I say, you know, you know, we don't run the business, we don't support the business, we are the business, those kinds of things. You have to, to do the best you can for your customers. You have to embed yourself into the customer's mission and goals. Like, why do they exist? What are they trying to get done? What are their priorities? Not about your priorities, not about your goals, but it's about your customer's goals. And I get it. It's sometimes easier said than done, right? right? Because no one's inviting you to sit at the table sometimes. But but I use sort of a, a three-tier model, right? Mm-hmm. At the bottom, it's like a pyramid in my mind. At the bottom is you can do what your customers ask for. And, and guess what? They'll tell you you're great. They love you. Thank you for doing that. You know, you'll get a lot of accolades. But then you, the stacks level would be you could do what they need, but they don't know how to ask for. They're not the expert that you are. And when you do that, you really moved into the partnership realm. You're not just supplying them with a good service. You are now a partner to them. And then you could do what they think is impossible. And in technology, you know, I mean, nothing's really impossible, right? But we see patterns, we see, you know, lots of different customers. So problems get solved in different ways in different industries and stuff. And you can bring that resolution to there. And the customer might think it's impossible because they just didn't know, right? but it is possible. And when you get up there and you're operating at that level, consistently delivering what things the customer thinks is impossible. Now you're in their business, right? You're strategic to them, right? You're a part of what they have to accomplish. And so that's how I think about, you know, right. Trying to just be embedded in that business of whoever it is you're supporting, right? Whether that's an internal support organization or it's a, a customer organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love that. I love that. Uh, being an indispensable partner to your customers, and you know, in, in terms of them seeing the tremendous value add. And it goes back to what you said, kind of even anticipating where they're trying to go and say, here's where we, here's the plan already. This is where we think you want to pivot to it. I love that. You know, how you've been able to be, to cultivate the, the power of resilience and recovery over your career. I love for you to talk about that. I mean, because I, I know it's a, for me, Failure also cultivates that resilience. And so you've talked about some learnings in your career and you've talked about some mistakes that you've made. How have you been able to cultivate that muscle of resilience and recovery? Yeah. So, you know, when I think about what I think what I said earlier, you know, it's not about the fact that you might make a mistake, but how you recover Mm -hmm. and apply those learnings. One of the things that, that I try to do, and I try to instill in my team too, that Screwing up is a fact of life mm-hmm. and taking accountability for it is great and, and learning from it is great. But if you can help others learn from your mistakes, yeah. now you can build a resilient organization. It kind of helps me to talk through like, here's what I did. This is why I did it, you know, and here's what I learned from it. And this is how, you know, the impact that it made. And it was bad. And this is why it's so important that we won't, you know, we have to fix this and not do it again and stuff. And so I think everybody would rather learn things from others' mistakes versus having to learn the hard way, you know, (laughs) and that sharing, you know, it's somewhat cathartic, right? That it helps me move past the failure but then focus on the learning. And I always apply it like to the scientific method, right? So if if you're a scientist and your experiment fails, then you learn something from it and you move on, right? And so I try to focus that that's, you know, part of how I sort of bounce back and get into 
you know, what's important and stay focused on the bigger mission that, you know, those experiments, sometimes that's what I call my failures experiments. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I, I also use a phrase, New Zealand. So no offense to anybody in New Zealand, but at the time I came up with this, New Zealand was an island, not a lot of people and not, you know, connected to the world. So you could try experiments there. If they failed, you just moved on. No one knew, right? Or if they were wildly successful, then you could starburst them from there into the rest of the world. And I think that that's part of, you know, how I think about if something's risky, rather than being afraid to do it because you might screw up, like I say, I always say, find your New Zealand. Let's do it somewhere that's like New Zealand, right? Meaning it's somewhere that it's not going to cause too much damage if you do it. The blast radius is small. And then then move on from there. So love that. Thank you. I love that, Kim. New Zealand, I want to remember that. So let's talk about the R and Roar. It's about, it, you know, the R and Roar is all about reflection. Mm-hmm. And I love to know how you leveraged the art of reflection to kind of help you recover, but also how you've used reflection to navigate from one pivot to the next in your career. I remember a conversation we had, and you mentioned that in our career, we, you know, we think, you know, when we change jobs, that's one transition, but there's so many other things. I thought, I, I remember you saying in a 30 year career, we could have up to 150 transitions. How do we navigate that? How do we use the power of reflection? How have you used the power of reflection to navigate some of those transitions? Yeah, yeah. And so, so let me just expand a little bit about that because your career is a culmination of what you do and what you're a part of because others are doing it. You know, mm-hmm. your, your boss changes jobs, your company gets reorganized, you spin out, you acquire, you do, you know, all sorts of things happen and change. Most of the things that happen that shape your career are not things that you directly control. And mm-hmm. so you, I always say you probably will have 15 jobs in your career and you'll have 150 transitions. And every transition is an opportunity for acceleration. Mm-hmm. And so the, and the question, this is about reflecting, right? So you, you, the question you have to ask yourself is, what are they really trying to get accomplished with this? Right. And once you understand that, then you can be part of driving that acceleration that can happen. But but I actually reflect every week. Mm -hmm. I think back, I have goals and priorities for the year. Right. And I think back on the week I do, you know, sort of a self scorecard. How did we do? What did we get done? And it helps me stay on those priorities because there's a lot of distractions in this world. Right. And you have to reflect on where you've been spending your time in order to adjust spending your time in the future. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I use that weekly time to just, you know, ensure I'm focused on the things that are going to move the needle on the right priorities and stuff. And if, if, if I got distracted during the week, you know, I, I just go, okay, I have to move on. Like next week I have to do this. And then I also spend a lot of time, you know, towards the end of the year and you're in that budgetary process to think about the the upcoming year. Then I really like to take stock in what got done. And that's sort of my time for celebration. And Mm -hmm. when you really reflect back, you find out that you can really do a lot more in a year than you think you can when you start the year. And that's to me, that's a fun thing to do because then you can really celebrate that progress. Right. So, and sometimes we're just too busy. We, we, we sort of miss the moments at times. And so I think it's important that you don't miss those moments. I love that. It's important to create the white space to, to stop and reflect on uh, what you're trying to accomplish and and how far you're getting in the process and what adjustments you need to make. Yeah. Well, I know you just recently shared the stage with Olympic gold medalist, Gabby Douglas, uh, where you guys talked about creating an Olympic mindset. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine what that was like. She's certainly um, someone that we've all continued to admire and in awe of what she's been able to achieve. Can you talk a little bit about the experience you had there and maybe some of the key nuggets that you guys shared or things you took away from Yeah. Oh my God. She is so impressive. For a young lady, she... She is just well-grounded. She wants to, you know, make change in the world. She's had her own adversity. You know, she comes through it, you know, better for it. And it's just, she's got an amazing story. 
Mm-hmm. And and I I said to the other panelists that are I'm like look she's the, she's the rock star and we're the backup dancers let's just be clear <laughs> and and that was really true she just you know um, she's just a really impressive young lady and, you know the way I described in that conversation the Olympic mindset in as it relates to business it, mm-hmm. is sort of this cycle of learning experimenting and experiencing and then repeating that. There's an element that, you know, you have to realize that no matter how good you are, the competition is always improving. So you have to continue to improve. And a big piece of improvement is coach, coaches, right? Mm -hmm. Every athlete in the world has a coach, right? They provide you crucial input for sustained superior performance. And because, you know, your coach, sees things that you don't see, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact is none of us make it alone in this world. So so we need those coaching relationships so that you can really seek the feedback and internalize it. And that's what keeps you at that superior performance level, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, so that was a great experience. And I was so glad to be able to be a part of that. Love it. I hear improvement is a continuous process. It's not a one-time event. <laughs> but take away from that. Awesome. Well, listen, you know, let's talk about some of the, the biggest obstacles that you faced. I mean, you know, you as a woman and, you know, who's been on a career journey for, you know, 20 plus years at the highest levels in the C-suite, how did you overcome some of the obstacles that you faced? And, and maybe what advice would you have for women who are aspiring to be executives on a playing field that isn't always as level as we might like it to be. I have to say, when I feel like I've had an injustice done to me, right? Or honestly, any other woman in the workplace, I, I've, uh, I get mad about it. I really do. But mm-hmm. I channel that into some form of constructed co- constructive conversation. Now it might need to be tomorrow, not the day that it happened because I need to be elect to myself. But then I really just try to explain to, you know, I'll say the perpetrator for lack of a better word, what I saw Mm -hmm. and, and how that made me feel. And then I, I always ask, was that your intention? Mm -hmm. Because we manage by intent, right? And 99% of the time you get the Oh no, I did not intend that. And and then it comes a conversation of, well, here's what you could do differently to accomplish your intention. Right. So, so I do think that like, I think we've had a a lot of progress in the last few years, Mm -hmm. women in tech. I think there's a lot more to do and we've moved past the era of fixing the women, like make women you know, when I first started, when, <laughs> when I first started my career, women in business dressed like men, had their hair cut like men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just like, I am just not going to do that. And for me, I was like, if that's the price of success, then I am not going to do that. I know and, that's right. <laughs> and so I've used that experience that I had in high school like, that make mm-hmm. my voice heard to make my voice heard when it comes to advancing and retaining women in the technical areas and stuff. And um, so I sort of live by two philosophies. So Mm -hmm. you mentioned one of them, it's gotta be a level playing field, right? Mm -hmm. And that's in hiring and promotion and career transitions, you know, you name it. And there are easy things companies can do, diverse interviews, diverse slates, et cetera. The hard thing and the most important thing in my mind is you have to, for the environment you're in, uncover what are the unlevel items on the playing field? What makes it unlevel? And you have to attack those items, right? And some of them are, are informal things like you know, I love it. You know, today we can see like who you collaborated with, you know, um, Outlook will send you, you know, and you can see, you know, patterns in there, mm-hmm. like, yep. right. All the like groups hanging out together, right. Are there cross, you can talk about data silos, you can talk about diversity, but there's a lot of, you know, information that can help companies break some of the traditional barriers and start to mm-hmm. level, level the playing field. 
And then the second area that I really focus on, I read a book by Rebecca Shamba a long time ago. And the title of the book is, it's not a glass ceiling, it's a sticky floor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are, there are sort of 10 lessons in that book. And um, the one that I focus on the most, because they all talk about how do you mitigate the sticky floor syndrome, right? Right. And so language is sort of my hot button. And so I always, you know, tell myself as well as tell other women, never say, I think, I think it looks like rain today. What do you say? You say, I believe it's going to rain today. More powerful, exact same message, but you can always make your words more powerful. And somebody gave me a compliment recently that said, you know, you command a room. When you come into the room, you command the room. And I was like, really? (laughs) But then I thought about that. And I'm like, that's because I make my words count. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love right? that. Yep. I use powerful words and people listen. And so th- that's just, a, you know, one of the, I think it's a big pivot mover for women to think about. Love that. Love that. Thank you. And what I would also uh, build on top of that is that, you know, what advice would you want to give to men who want to be allies, right? Who want to make sure that that playing field is level, so to speak. Yeah. So I've asked a lot of men who I think are really good at this. I say, Hey, what, what do you like? I asked the chairman of the board for one of the companies I was on. I only wanted to meet with him because he had built this board. And at the time, this was unusual. That was half women, right? It was 50, 50. And so they were, they were interviewing and they're interested in me. I was, I said, I'm not interested in this company. Blah, blah. I'm too busy, blah, blah. but I want to go talk to him. Cause I want to know how he did it. All the men that I've asked, So I say, how did you build a board? That's half women. How did you build a technical engineering team that are half women? You know, I ask these questions and they all, the ones are really good at it. They said, they don't know. They just pick the best talent, right? They don't look at the package. And that's, I think that's what we all strive for, whether you're a woman, whether you're, you know, uh, African-American and you're, you know, in the, the gay community, it doesn't matter. That's what we all strive for. We just want to be known for our talent what we can absolutely and Mm -hmm. and so so then when I talk to people who who are not quite as skilled (laughs) in this area you know I I really focus on how do you see past the package Mm, so so they speak a little different than you so they you know have you know a little more emotion than you so why does that bother you what 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 is it about that you know (laughs) And, and and it makes people uncomfortable but I think in the end, we're better for it. If you know, if you know what I mean. That's a whole talk, Kim. How do you see past the package? That is powerful. Okay. I love to hear, hear more on that. Wow. Well, listen, I, we could talk all day. I am so enjoying every moment of this. I don't want it to end, but I know I must let you go. Uh, There's (laughs) more for you to do today. It's not to spend your full day with Akeisha, although I'd love to arrange that. But anyway, so (laughs) let's just maybe wrap up with some fun lightning round of questions. And well, actually, before I do that, is there anything else that you want to share with the audience that I didn't give you an opportunity to share before we get to a little bit of fun here? I just want to say thank you to you, Lakeisha. I mean, one, thanks for doing this podcast. Just even this week, I shared it with a friend of mine who has two little girls. And I said, can you have your little girls listen to this podcast? <laughs> and, you know, it's it's like the power of multiplication, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it is sort of about you know, helping others and, you know, we all help one another. And that's, uh, so I I really, really thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for, for joining and being here again. Like I said, I've been so blessed by leaders like yourself, um, just beautiful women and men who just poured into me. And to your point, let's create a platform where we can just share because to your point, we we're not successful by ourselves. There's always a team. There's Mm -hmm. always a group that lifts and support you. And so thank you for always lifting not just me but I mean I think every woman at Intel still remembers you and the impact that you had and still talk about the lessons that they learned from you so thank (laughs) you so much for that so let's have a little bit of fun so I'll say a word or a phrase and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind what's your favorite food watermelon oh I love watermelon okay especially (laughs) I know right we can't get enough of it what's your guilty pleasure if you have one cake oh yeah (laughs) Too much of it. <laughs> I love it. I don't know that you have a lot of time for this, but if you do, what do you have a current Netflix addiction? 
I do not watch TV oh, other than live sports. I don't oh, watch yeah. TV. I love it. I love so it. I do not have a Netflix account. Smart woman, smart woman. Trust me, because you can become addicted. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know. I think you like to travel, and I know you know that's been hampered by COVID. But you know, once if once you can get on a plane, uh, what might be the next uh, fun location you and your husband are thinking about? We're knock on wood. We're going to Belize in November. So generally, our vacations are around great food, great wine. We always try to have family or friends with us. And, you know, it's active. We're going to sail um, or we'll scuba dive or we'll hike or it's an active vacation. So I love it. And I'll end with this. What's maybe a, a book you're reading right now or a favorite book that you have? So I don't watch TV, but I do read. <laughs> and I am a junkie for all spy mystery novels. And so right now, and I like it, the character novels. So right now I'm in this Alex Hawk series and reading, you know, from beginning to end that series. That's generally what I do is I'll find a character novel. I'll start with the beginning and I'll read, you know, 20 books by that author till I'm done. And then I find the next author. So Well, listen, we wish you best on that vacation with you and your honey. And again, so great connecting. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. All right. See you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time, 